0: I have to mock this guy who uh, puts a picture of himself golfing in a chef whites and a toque. It's I couldn't have made
1: the image better if I would have made it myself. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. The social media meme can be funny, biting, poignant, and oftentimes ubiquitous. Eli Sussman, a talented chef and cookbook author, has mastered the art of the culinary meme, and we talk about it on this very special episode. Eli and I have been friends for years, and we had fun catching up about his journey from Michigan short-order cook to LA music marketer, to NYC restaurateur, provocateur, and meme maker. Eli is a true original, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Eli Sussman, welcome to Taste Podcast. Great to be here. Man, we go back. We do. We have some history in Mm -hmm. a a good way. I mean, I think I wrote about your second and third cookbooks with your brother, Max Sussman. Mm -hmm. I I love your cookbooks.
0: Thanks. Yeah, we cranked out a couple. Three in three years, we put out.
1: No way. You did a third one, which I don't think I I got that one. Yeah, yeah.
0: 14, 15, 16, we released cookbooks with William Sonoma. Yeah,
1: and you know what? What I like about them Um, you were really ahead with voice. I think that voice was something back in the early 2010s. Like There wasn't a lot of voice in cookbook writing. It felt still very academic. I mean, there's obviously we talk about great cookbooks from the 90s et cetera, but Um, writing from a youthful point of view, but also being really smart about food. You did it both.
0: They gave us a lot of leeway to inject some of our own life and personality into the photos and the headers. And so it really read, coming from Max and I, what we would actually want to cook, and us trying to invite you to a dinner party or hanging out at our apartment. And they let the copy roll and so there wasn't that much uh voice editing on the copy so yeah i'm happy with those those cookbooks they still feel like me even even like eight years
1: later they really feel like something that i can be proud of i mean you we will talk about the memes because your meme um productivity and just like your vibe and your voice is so strong and i love it and you are gaining Lots of fans by the day. Um, it's very cool. And so clearly you've always had a skills with editorial and, and writing. Um, so we'll get into memes, but I want to get first about – let's talk about growing up. We both grew up in Michigan, so yeah. I, I can't resist. What was food like in your household in Michigan growing up? I would
0: say fairly traditional upbringing in terms of sitting around the table for dinner. Or my brother, my dad, and my mom often home-cooked meals, not a huge amount of carry out. The one – caveat is that we didn't have a microwave growing up, so reheating was done in a pan. We didn't have a lot of, um, you know, those frozen foods around the house, so was it a super adventurous eating household? Yeah. I would say on the higher end of the adventurous spectrum, but not anything totally crazy, yeah. and we didn't eat out that much, yeah. and if we did, we ate Middle Eastern food, usually, or, or maybe Indian food, so uh, grew up eating a lot of hummus and pita and baba ganoush and always
1: had things like that around the house. Yeah, you grew up outside Detroit, and when you hear about Detroit, but but was the no microwave thing, was that like a cancer scare thing? It's just my parents being the way that
0: they are I think that they, it was just a conscious decision that they made and then once they decided to stick to it, it became almost like a running joke in the house we're a no microwave house and that's how we differentiated ourselves from other people Are you still a no microwave house? I have a microwave but my parents still do not have a microwave. It's My mom is a a free (laughs) spirit, an independent thinker and that is her little small revolt against the suburbs.
1: I mean I think microwave popcorn is, is kind of overrated, I'm not a huge fan but I think like the idea of like cheese melting in a microwave, I I can't live without that
0: we had a popcorn machine growing up yes that was a singular purpose machine and I remember that would be uh, that would be utilized sometimes it had a little spout so the popcorn would would pop and then pour over into a bowl, which is very satisfying. Was it a yellow
1: plastic one? It sure was. I was I that
0: yeah. Color. And, yeah. you know, as in terms of putting things in the microwave, all my friends had microwaves and they all had these amazing <laughs> junk <laughs> closets. So my experience falling in love with food was often through the junk food opportunities at yep. other people's houses <laughs> and, like, going into someone's pantry and having 15 types of cereal to choose from and mixing them all up in your bowl. I remember that as a very vivid out-of-the-house memory, you know, going in and, oh, my God, you have Pop-Tarts and Yo. you have Chicken Nuggets, like all the things that we didn't have at We had the same house.
1: parents. I mean, Jewish parents, like Snackwell's fam, and definitely no sugar cereal. So when I went yeah. to the Gilroy's down the street and they had, like, Captain Crunch and um, Cinnamon Toast Crunch- like Yeah, whoa. totally. I thought Honey Nut Cheerios
0: was the be-all end-all of sugar yeah. cereals, and yeah. then I tried, <laughs> you know, Cinnamon Toast Crunch for the first time, yeah. and my life changed. I saw <laughs> the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh-huh.
1: I, I mean, uh, we could talk about cereal, but I want to hear about Detroit, because you grew up outside Detroit, but yeah. you clearly, um, you know, lived in Detroit. Do you go to school uh, near Detroit?
0: Uh, not really. I went to like a Jewish day school in the burbs. Yeah, but so, college. But you
1: went to college. I
0: went to Michigan
1: State. MSU Spartans. That's yeah. Right, right, right. So like,
0: did we? We went to Detroit a lot yeah. growing up, and for you know, either shows or concerts, mm-hmm. the, all the Tigers games that we went to. So yeah. we went downtown, but ate a lot of food in Dearborn. Yeah. Huge Middle Eastern population there. Um, Food was a lot different, and going to Detroit was a lot different when we were kids than it is now. The yeah. sort of new, built-up, Dan Gilbert, shiny, glossy metropolis that you see in the five blocks of downtown, it wasn't really like that yeah. 33 years ago when I was a little kid growing no. up in Michigan. So,
1: No, no I, I went to the Shinola Hotel recently and had, had lunch or brunch in that in that restaurant there i was like whoa, where the f- i'm like in brooklyn or some shit here
0: totally yeah <laughs> it's uh it's very much like they plopped down like a block or two of austin in downtown detroit or something like that
1: it, it's cool like I, there's no hate in my voice i just feel it's so different from growing up but i, I mean detroit is fun though like what, give me one one element of detroit when you go back you visit your brother we'll talk about max a little bit at the end um, what what's like something that we should all know about Detroit that maybe model listeners don't know?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, family shout out, but my mom runs this amazing nonprofit print shop down in Eastern Market, and it's cool. called Signal Return. So my mom's a printmaker by trade. Amazing. She's a, She's an artist, and she works with these massive printing presses, and Signal Return has these... Antique, incredible presses, and you do letterpress. It's all by hand. And so I think that that's a nice representation of something that can happen in downtown Detroit. You're working with your hands. It feels very much like a mechanical exercise, like building cars in a yeah. factory to yep. a certain extent, sure. you know, small pieces that fit together. And then you're in Eastern Market, which still mm. has a lot of charm. It has an active farmer's market. sapino's Pizzeria is right there, which I think is awesome, mm-hmm. Detroit pizza. And then if you want some... That's you know a newer spot, and if you want to um, walk a little bit further down the road, you can make your way over to uh, Sheldon Standard, which I think is one of the best restaurants in Angry. Detroit. Agree, hard agree. So Love that's that's some of like the newer things that are happening yeah. in Detroit. I mean, they're both both of those places are maybe a decade old at this point, but they're both really excellent. So I like to send people to both of those places for a taste of newish Detroit. Yeah. Uh,
1: because you brought it up,
0: buddies or jets. You know, I am not a huge pizza eater, right? So yeah. I'm going to dodge that question Great. by saying because I don't eat dairy, really, mm-hmm. it's been a long time since I've really dove into a pizza. Yeah. But I've always been more of a traditional circle, thinner crust pizza. So even if I'm going to eat pizza which with cheese, which I do very, very rarely, yeah. I'm more of a – like a Roberta's New York style slice piece. I don't love that deep dish yeah. Detroit square style pizza. It's just a little too much dough and cheese for me. Yeah. And I know that I'm going to get crucified for nah. that by, by Detroit folks. But like, I guess I would take buddies over jets, but honestly the true answer is neither.
1: Neither. Uh, fair enough. Uh, we don't need to b- belabor your, your, your unfortunate yeah. take. Yeah. um, <laughs> um you ended up in L.A. I now, did. And this was something when I met you, when you were cooking at like Mile End. I think I met you when you were running running the show there. You, But you had this career before food. You were in advertising. You worked in like radio advertising and print advertising? I worked in music, yeah. I oh, okay. had a, a bit of a
0: weird – way to get to backdoor into cooking which was i moved to los angeles because i thought i would want to get involved in management in the music industry interesting okay and i did an internship at a record label and i ended up landing at a company which did all the marketing and advertising and promotions and media buying for about a hundred record labels Mm. those were our clients so i was music adjacent i got to go to shows I got to speak to people that worked at record labels every day and their managers, and I thought, maybe I'll be able to kind of backdoor my way to music management. And then as the music industry started to crumble due to Napster, which (laughs) obviously dates me a little bit, that's when I was working in the music industry, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. I had always loved cooking and was doing it Mm. on the side, catering companies in L.A. on the weekends, and I just kept talking to my brother. I don't think this is the right fit for me. Should I... Switched to a cooking career, and he was cooking in New York. And after a certain amount of time, he just said, "You got to stop asking me and just do it."
1: Because he was up at Roberta's, right?
0: At that point, he was at the Breslin,
1: okay, wow. at the Ace, yeah, yeah.
0: So he said, "You guys, you just should move here yeah. and just get a cooking job. And if you don't like it, go back and work in advertising sure. or move to L.A. You know, you have options. You're lucky enough to have the privilege to just." Quit everything and try it. And that was sound advice. So I moved to New York. I crashed on his floor. He got me a couple trails set up. My first one was at Mile End, and I immediately knew that it was the right fit.
1: That's pretty cool. And you had no professional experience. You just went into trail with, like, Noah and those guys without really having worked. You were said to catering kitchens, No right?
0: professional restaurant experience, yeah. truthfully,
1: at that kind of level
0: because I yeah. cooked in college, but— that was a grill line yeah. job at a Greek joint in, in East Lansing. Yeah. Pretty straightforward, eggs and omelets mm-hmm. type stuff, sandwiches. And so I started as a prep cook at Mile End. They had a prep kitchen in um, Gwan- uh, like basically Gowanus area mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. President Street. Nice. And I started learning how to make hot dogs and and curing meat and making chicken stock and things like that. Uh, And that was my first uh,
1: role here when I moved to New York. That's incredible because your time at Mile End um, really uh, aligned with that restaurant getting moving well beyond just the Montreal-style smoked meat. Yeah. Like, you were doing cool shit and innovating and just being a chef. I mean, it it was cool. It was
0: insanely popular when I started there. I don't want to, like, take credit for for that, but I do think that I – took something that was working there exceptionally well, which was this Montreal-style delicatessen, and then building on it and developing Jewish dishes that existed within the realm of, you know, either like traditional New York-style deli food or more diaspora Jewish cooking, mm-hmm. which encompasses some of my family and ancestry from Eastern Europe and isn't maybe – it's not really Montreal Jewish yeah. cuisine, but also a lot of that is wrapped up together since so many Jewish people immigrated to both Montreal and New York. Uh, there's ties that kind of weave them together. Nice. So that was my first opportunity to, you know, put something on the menu and and maybe have a little bit of my own voice cooking.
1: Yeah. And you see that at Samisa now. I mean, that, that diasporic c- cooking. Yeah. Um, and so clearly you had an interest in it um, early on in your professional career, like, there wasn't a lot of that in New York at that time. I mean, there's certainly some temple places um, that were doing um, the style of Mediterranean Jewish cooking that you ended up doing um, at Milan and later at Samisa. But like, how did you learn those flavors? Like, how did you actually, I'm really curious about like the the inspiration to go there in that direction.
0: Yeah, well, what Max and I, the, the inspiration for Samisa is really, what did we love growing up? What did we eat? chicken over rice is ubiquitous. You Mm -hmm. find it at so many different bodegas in New York, but also um, the halal trucks were a major inspiration for us. So as a cook getting off work, your late night meal option is often rolling to the corner deli and getting uh, some sort of chicken over rice. It's usually coming with a white sauce. It's maybe Greek or Turkish inspired, but you're playing with a lot of the same elements within that to-go box. and so. As Max and I thought more and more about starting our own concept and we moved away from a 50-seat casual restaurant that had a wine program to a true fast casual restaurant, it was really always going to be about the shawarma, putting meat in a pita and putting meat over rice. So those flavors are things that you would be familiar with if you went to a traditional Middle Eastern restaurant. And then we tried to do our best to make something that tasted delicious while still honoring the original versions of those while not trying to copy them, right? I'm not from the Middle East. I grew up eating a lot of food from the Middle East. I've spent some time in Israel, but I'm not Israeli. So there's all these flavors that I am familiar with, but I am trying to do something new, but not – I'm not trying to reinvent shawarma. Of course not. I just want to make a version of shawarma that I think yeah. is, is delicious. So we formulated this recipe, and then that really becomes the anchor. That's like the skeleton the yeah. tree of Samisa that we hang everything else on around that, the salads, the dips, all the fun things that we've come up with over the years. They're all really just add-ons to the mm-hmm. fact that shawarma was
1: always the tent pole. Yeah. Mean. And so the business itself. I remember when you popped up at Threes. Yeah, I mean that's when I think we started doing content together. Yeah, we did that. We did the Sussman Week. Remember that? Food yeah. Republic? Wow. That yeah. was really fun. And um, so that was 2014. 14. Probably. Yeah, definitely when when you were popping up. But then the business, like, you know, ups and downs in restaurants. Like you're opening. I remember you had spaces all over Brooklyn. You never had a place in Manhattan, which you have now. And we'll talk about the Rock yeah. Center opening. But how did that go? Um, were you ever um, feeling like you were uh, boxed into a corner? Or were you Were you evolving the way you felt like you should be evolving?
0: It's always been an up and down, and there's so many times where we thought, thought that we were right on the cusp of figuring it out and yeah. making it work, and and then there's some sort of setback. And we've had good years and awful years, and yeah. amazing, explosive months, and times when I thought the business was going to close. and a lot of people that have restaurants can commiserate with that where you feel like I'm definitely going to turn the corner. This is an amazing month. And then five things in the restaurant break and you realize there's no profit this month and we're looking down, you know, yep. sort of uh, the the disastrous conclusion, which is that we're going to have to potentially close this restaurant. So we've opened many Spots and some have worked and some haven't. I mean, Williamsburg was awesome, and we had to close it because of COVID for because of a landlord disagreement. Cool space, yeah. I like that space a lot. That it will always have a a, a, you know, that will always occupy a large part of my heart because that was our true brick and mortar that we launched, and we were there for a really long time and would have stayed there for quite some time. We were in Essex Market for a minute, not a good fit for us. Mm -hmm. Um, and now we're in Midtown, and I think part of growing up as a person while owning a restaurant is trying to remove some of my ego out of it and just realizing that like as hard as I've tried not everything has worked sometimes the right concept is not in the right place and what I found is that it really is a fast casual concept and those rely on extreme foot traffic. So there's only so many places in New York City where you yep. can get that volume of people.
1: And it certainly is in Brooklyn. Right. It's it's not on
0: a side street <laughs> no. in East Williamsburg, unfortunately. No. So it's like, yes, we did well there and we did a lot of catering, but yeah. I'm trying to you know, contend with a Chipotle and a Sweetgreen. And so I need somewhere where hundreds, if not thousands of people are walking by during lunch. So you know, that's few and far between. In New York City, you've got a a bunch of blocks in Manhattan that you can probably make it work on and a couple in Brooklyn where you've got that density. So... Rockefeller Center was a huge opportunity, and I just wanted to see if it would work there. Like yeah. from a vindication standpoint, I thought I've got a fast casual concept. Can I open it in Midtown? Yeah, will like, it function? You're here? in the
1: belly of Rock Center, which is, yeah. has had quite a rejuvenation with all these um, openings. And totally, uh, I mean, really smart to get you guys there. And I'm so looks right by our office. I wanted to get this background about the ups and downs of restaurants because it 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 clearly it feeds your memes and your content because yeah. I feel like. You come at it um, honestly, and you come at it with, with with attitude and with edge, and I think um, you could say sometimes it's pessimistic, sometimes it's negative. I think yeah. you've, you've even mentioned recently you might have been on a little bit of a negative streak, but it comes from a place that you've actually lived in the restaurant industry for, for over a decade. It's hard, and I think what you're doing is you're um, articulating it with humor and with meme culture. You're so plugged with um, the current vocabulary of memes. So let's start there. How the hell did you get into this meme world? The meme stuff happened because
0: of COVID. I closed Samisa. I was at home. I was having that existential crisis of deciding whether I was going to choose a totally different career or whether I could reopen my restaurant. Having these long, terrible conversations with lawyers and insurance and and my bookkeeper. And it was... Mm -hmm. Very stressful. And it just felt like an outlet for me to try to concisely explain what I was going through. And a meme is this perfect mechanism to sum everything up that you're feeling into a s- statement, mm-hmm. into a sentence or two. And it clicked for me. And I started putting them on, and a lot of it was about the New York City response to restaurants. Restaurants were being Uh, marginalized. Their employees were being marginalized by the owners and just all the shit was running downhill to the workers, right? These frontline workers that were being literally and figuratively abused and taken advantage of. So I started to try to cultivate a bit of a voice that was what I was going through, but also put myself in the perspective of not only an owner, but I've been a line cook. What is the prep guy going through? Bartenders, front of house, all these people. So I just listen to what people were venting about, and then try to make memes that would appeal to their perspective. And so from that, it just kind of opened up into this thing where I switched my account from taking overhead photos of food plates like what everyone (laughs) else had been doing to just kind of ranting about things that were upsetting me that was going on in the food industry. And what I found really quickly is that uh, folks in the industry felt, scared a lot of the time to say this stuff
1: out loud. Yeah.
0: And I am willing to
1: say Yeah, it out the quiet loud. part loud is always said and it's brave and it's bold and I think I wanted to ask you first like the idea of the meme that the craft of the meme like a lot of chefs don't get the internet and you clearly, you don't just get it, you like mastered it. Mm. How how uh, do you just, are you just online a lot? Do you just have your phone? Because you're like working, you're like putting out yeah. like a hundred shawarmas an hour but you still have time to figure out what's the vocabulary of TikTok yeah. which is not for everyone our age.
0: I mean, I've got awesome staff and they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting, right? so I On the meme it, side or on the shawarma side? No, on the shawarma I'm side. I'm joking, I'm joking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I'm on the train, right? So yeah. I'm, I have like my 30 or 40 accounts that I re, that I follow yeah. specifically to stay tapped into what is going on in the internet. And honestly, I'm still an old dude. I'm Googling words and <laughs> and being like, I have no idea what's going on in yeah. this scenario. I've clearly missed something in the like Gen Z yeah. uh, verbiage that has gone way over my head, but I know what's going on in the food industry. And as the account has grown and I've not only just put my own feelings out there i get lots and lots of dms from people that are sharing an anecdote or i'll even put up a i'll pu- i'll put up a request yeah. give me your worst doh moment and i'll get a lot of fodder that way that i can turn into content so like a lot of it comes from my life and again i'm trying to like represent the perspective of so many people in the industry so people are more than happy to share gossip which is not really what i want the account to be for but they're no. they're willing to share stories and anecdotes and bad days that they've had and then from there I'm going to take an image and just you know
1: and run with it plop yeah.
0: something over it yeah. Yeah. and hopefully yeah. it resonates with people
1: and then now you're doing more front-facing camera work too and you're, you're yeah. doing definitely some tiktoks and I think that also is a craft I mean do you like doing that work I mean you seem like you're having a good time
0: you know I'm trying to do I've done a couple reels and yeah. part of it is this feeling of all right I I like the way the account is going. Obviously, I have an ego. So I want it to be successful. I want to stay front (laughs) and center. And so I need to diversify the content, for lack of a better term. And so, yeah, I got to get into video. And I've tried to do things that I think are still within the realm of being kind of sassy and having that little bit of an edge to them or at least – being funny in the way that's going to resonate with people that that are watching so i did you know the new year's eve one just recently which was like you go into your walk in and yeah. you've got all this extra stuff that you've over ordered and that's really seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Because it's the reality
1: yeah. of a January 7th walk-in where you've over-ordered your mise en place for New Year's Eve and right. you're in the whole thousands because you didn't have your reservations that you yeah. thought you would. And you're running that truffle french fries. Or, you know, <laughs> you're,
0: you're running, like, that lobster sandwich that you never really yeah. wanted to put on the menu. So um, I like making the memes more than I like doing the yeah. videos, for sure.
1: Yeah. Now, let me ask – do you ever get nervous before you post a meme? I mean, there, there is a fearlessness with the, the account because you're taking on big—we'll get to some of the folks you take on. And you very clearly have a strong opinion about some of these sacred cows mm-hmm. and sacred pigs and sacred whatever. Um, do you ever get nervous? Yeah, definitely. Thanks th- for being
0: honest. I think that there's uh, uh, internal pressure and external pressure on me to say something now. And what I found is that I'm getting a lot of DMs when a thing happens, mm. and people say, "Can't wait for the memes." Can't wait for you to tackle this topic. And so, what if I'm busy and I don't put out a meme, and then people think that I sidestepped it, or that I'm, you know, siding with someone that I truthfully don't know, or that I don't have any opinion on. And often, sometimes, the conversation has already been had, and I don't necessarily want to weigh in and put my stamp on it. Um, or it's a topic that just doesn't really interest me, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to touch it. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't want Thomas Keller to hate my fucking guts. Like, I don't honestly know him, and mm-hmm. I don't have any direct beef with him. But his golf club post was preposterous, so yeah. I had to comment on yeah, it. Yeah, like, let's that, get into that yeah. one because
1: I want to get into some recent ones. We're recording this in uh, early January. Yeah. Um, Noma, uh, quote-unquote, closing uh, a few days ago. That news um, hit, hit your feed pretty hard. But— Keller, like, let's go over this thing. He lost his golf clubs?
0: Yeah, and then he put up a post about trying to uh, get them back. He wanted information. He offered a reward, and then he listed the contents of his golf bag, which was just an extensive list of very high-end items. Some of them were were monogrammed, and (laughs) it just seemed like he was making it too easy for me. Yeah. Like he just did all my work for me. You know, yeah. he's just leading me right to the water. And <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? Like, I have to mock this guy who uh, puts a picture of himself golfing in a chef whites and a toque. You know, yeah. it's, I couldn't have made the image better if I would have made it myself. So you gotta. Dig into those certain people at the top. You know, there's there's a there's some chefs at the top, and they are so famous. They are celebrities that I feel like going after them. Is allowed. They they have been in the <laughs>
1: public domain public for a long time. Yeah.
0: They are in the the culinary zeitgeist. Like everyone knows them. They've transcended being just like a working chef. You know, I'm not going to usually go after someone who's grinding it out. There you don't restaurant. punch
1: down. I mean that that's a bad look, and yeah. it's just a bad tendency for internet culture to be e- punching down. Yeah, Come and on. that's
0: I mean that's not you know. I put out what's going to resonate with a wide swath of people. And so, like, they have to know who I'm talking about. And, you know, sure, that's the Daniel Hums of the world. And, again, I don't know him. But, like, there's just so many things that happen at EMP that are easy to make fun of. And this is the role that I've taken. Like, I commentate on what's going on in the food industry. And often the things I find to be super problematic is that three Michelin star culture. Like, that – There are incredible people that work in that realm, super talented people. I am not saying that your job and your life is worthless for committing to that. But I am commenting on aspects of that unpaid labor culture, which I think is completely fucked and that I do not think should happen anymore. And if the folks at the top are not willing to uh, really – say that they've been complacent and that they've been part of the problem and they're going to continue to use this brigade system to exacerbate an existing problem, well then I am going to take the opportunity to comment on your sort of blind eye to how you've built your empire on the back of
1: unpaid labor. It's also the the idea of gatekeeping. I feel like you really push back on the idea that a few individuals have all this power or perceived power. Um, I mean, I have to ask you just honestly, do you feel like food media just like totally fucks it up like when covering these – Michelin star dudes, um, mostly dudes?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of them do. It's this breathless coverage of this just unbelievable plating and the sourcing of the ingredients. And it's always a singular guy front and center. But he hasn't touched that plate for six months. Actually, he might have not have had anything to do with the conceptual – aspect of that dish, it's a CDC you've never heard of, and then 100 people who put in an absurd amount of hours to, you know, construct all the ingredients of this Mm -hmm. plate. And you know what? It hits your table, and it's cold.
1: Yeah, I love that. You're very much to your heart on the the actual That drives
0: me absolutely nuts that at the end of the day, like, it looks very pretty. And you know what I would really love? I would like a nice piece of chicken or fish cooked well and delivered to my table warm like that's what a restaurant should truly be it should be a satisfying experience Mm -hmm. where you can be with friends and family and eat some food together and these gastronomic temples where you get these endless courses of really small items that have a ton of stuff on the plate that you can't even identify and then you get a massive bill i think that food media has done too much over the last decade to push those as, like, the forefront of culinary ingenuity when what I would love to see is neighborhood restaurants that are creating equitable practices. Mm -hmm. Like, why aren't we shouting them out from the rooftops? Like, that's super cool. You have a restaurant, and everyone loves working there, and you make a profit, and your employees are paid – That is so unbelievable to be able to achieve that in today's day and age. And yet you see very little coverage of that.
1: Which makes me think about Dirt Candy and Amanda Cohen because I think what she's doing is both. And it's one of those rare instances. And she didn't get the Beard Award um, last year, unfortunately. Um, But I feel like she is one of many she's gotten a lot of press but there's more who are equitable but doing high like really great food too yeah that's the idea like this has to be great food if we're gonna write about it i mean we can't necessarily write about like mediocre food it's kind of right antithetical to what a food journalist is supposed to do yeah but like the idea of putting these gas these gas these gastronauts like these guys who are like in space floating around on a pedestal, I agree with you.
0: But I think there are, you know, there is still wonderful journalism out there that's yeah. highlighting awesome restaurants. Like, Table for Two is often highlighting places that you've never heard of. And, yeah. um, like, I love Helen Rosner. Yeah, and, Helen like, and Hannah are doing and great work. They, both yeah. of them are really, like, you know, Chris Crowley at Grub Street, he's often shouting out restaurants yeah. that you've never heard of. Like, there's people doing real journalism.
1: Oh, of course. But, I think at Taste, I think we do the same.
0: Yeah, so. and but I think where I... The folks that I'm kind of going after is that, you know, a new $10 million build-out restaurant happens, and you know it's going to get reviewed in the Times. And yeah. the like the sort of obvious nature of that food media cycle, which is
1: propelled by a PR
0: apparatus, is
1: just boring to me. Yeah, it's true. It's uncreative. Um, food media is changing, though. I'm, I'm optimistic that there's certainly um, a, a sea change coming. Um, <laughs> so, okay, NOMA. Um we booked this ahead of time. We didn't know this was happening. The New York yeah. Times could see exclusive rights about, you know, this quote-unquote closing in 2025. Hilarious. Um what do you think? What are your thoughts, Eli?
0: Yeah, I mean, I put out the tweet and I think I said what <laughs> what I wanted to say, which is that there was a huge opportunity for them to change the paradigm. And if you when you're at the top, you have this awesome platform. And what I w- would have loved to have seen is just why not just raise the prices and then say we weren't doing it properly and we're going to now pay our staff and 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 what we're going to do now is change the entire uh, model and and so they didn't do that and instead they decided to instead they decided to just kind of pivot and shut down over the next two years and a huge missed opportunity.
1: I agree, but also run private um, series and have uh, food, packaged food R and D happening at the same time. Can't hate on a company trying to pivot and evolve their business model. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm also I think it's a missed opportunity as well, is to create a narrative that is um, like about equitable pay. Someone has presented the fact that like we sh- they should have been um, charging people to work there and made it actually a school instead and think of it as that
0: why not try a new model that would would benefit all those folks that have contributed and built that place into what it is because it's truly the workers there that have done so much and look i you know i'm not the loudest critic of that place and i don't have all the information but i what i will say is that you know What if they would have decided to do something that would have been more equitable for their employees, right? And they would have stayed open, other restaurants would have looked to that and said, Wow, we need to aspire to do that in the same way that we've aspired to rip off NOMA creatively from a culinary standpoint. I mean, every restaurant has been, you know, basically parroting their plates for years, right? They are the they are the leader from a visual perspective. Yeah. Why not embrace that position and just realize that, like, whatever you do, people will aspire and copy to do
1: what you do. So, again, missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. I've invited Renee on the show many times through his PR. I've interviewed Renee many times. Mm-hmm. He's been very cool with me. I've spoken at MAD. I, I really – I've never dined at NOMA but has spent time in the kitchen there. And um, I can't speak about his character because I don't know him, but at least um, he's, he's certainly – Push the boundaries of food into places that uh, that we could never have imagined 25 years ago. So yeah, I mean, look, give them credit for that.
0: Everyone who goes through that kitchen has, per, for the most part, a skill set that I will never have. Yeah. There's a there's a technical uh, quality that all those chefs that work there. Are like I'm not ragging on them. I'm no. just saying, with great responsibility comes great opportunity, and and I think that they they missed the
1: mark. Are you optimistic about anything right now? Oh,
0: yeah. I am so optimistic. I'm a pretty positive guy. You are. And like, I
1: feel like this has come off as me, like, uh,
0: raging on the industry. but
1: No, I, not at all. I really, right? Not, right? I
0: really uh, I'm so excited about the opportunity for these newer businesses to have, you know, COVID presented a lot of people with a lower barrier to entry to sign a lease or sign a short-term lease, and, um, you know, there's this... Uh, spot in New York City they started selling burritos off their fire escape right Mm -hmm. and now they've got a spot in a food hall and you saw so many people that tried a pop-up during COVID now they've got a brick and mortar location right Eric was doing fried chicken as Mm -hmm. this pop-up and now he's on Flatbush and he's got a physical restaurant and he was like a fine dining guy and now he's doing fried chicken, and who knows... This is Pecking
1: House? Yeah. Oh, shit, I love Pecking House. And
0: who knows, like, if that would have been his career trajectory, if that place would have even existed without COVID. So it gave so many people the opportunity to pause and regroup and think about what they wanted to do, and people left traditional careers and, and now are private chefing. So, like, I think there's all these interesting avenues that people were able to pursue because there's been, like, a change in mindset, and also there's still amazing food that's happening everywhere across America, across the world, mm-hmm. from people that are taking the opportunity to open their own place and they're doing it maybe in a smaller way because they're realizing that the if the food is good, mostly other things will come. Yeah. And you don't need that like big glitzy build-out PR rollout. You can just cook some food and, you know, Dame is a small restaurant and yet they have gotten the acclaim of a restaurant 10x the size um, because people love it. Yeah. They gravitate towards it. Same with it.
1: Bonnies, too.
0: Bonnies as well, yeah. you know, like they they do something very specific there that yeah. people were so excited about that Cantonese American style yeah. of cuisine. And um, and it's caught on like wildfire. Yeah. I mean, people are crazy for it. So, like there are really cool things happening that are in that either mid-level casual space or even at a like slightly cheaper price Mm -hmm. point i think that's awesome
1: let me ask you like how can we as diners be the best possible diner when dining at a but we'll say both fast casual or the counter like your spot or just any kind of dining fine dining middle dining etc
0: yeah i think that the diner has to a little bit more so now understand what goes into cooking and what the job is like and still realize that it's it's really hard but also absorb a little bit more of that cost you know things are prices have gone insane on product and so you know to a certain extent even at that lower price point that we're talking about you're going to see things that you might get a little bit of sticker shock and so I hope when you go out, you really – it's an enjoyable experience. I hope you love the food, but also you still have to tip even if things are a little bit more expensive. You can't be pulling back on like your tip. Like tip
1: the 20 to 25% to yeah. 30% to 35% on the actual bill. I mean eggs right. are $126 a case right now. Exactly. They were like $65 a case um, less than two years ago.
0: Yeah. It's uh, – you know, everything has kind of gone through the roof. You've got like lettuce quadrupled yesterday, right? I yeah. tried to buy some iceberg and it was – Outrageous.
1: so what's the price then just like what, what does quadruple mean i mean like a case of iceberg lettuce
0: is like pushing 85 bucks wow. and you know it used to be like free basically it used to be a dollar a head essentially yeah. no one wanted iceberg lettuce but there's drought and California is having issues and you know
1: dude everyone wants shreddish you know <laughs> shreddish is like everywhere right yeah and
0: and so everything has gotten more expensive but that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to all of a sudden be either cheap or impatient and that sort of – COVID, uh, I'm giving you some leeway mentality that some diners did have and offered restaurants for a while, it did that dissipated a while ago. I know. But I'm asking people to still be kind of kind and understand that like this is still a really tough business and profession, and you should leave a tip.
1: What about, should we dine out less and just dine out better? I mean, I I don't, yeah, you're shaking your head. Yeah, that I
0: don't specifically know. Like That totally depends on your what you've got in your pocket and what, sure. you're, what you want to do, but I think that you know if you're if you are thinking about making those decisions in a real specific way, you're like I only have a X amount of money per month, then do it in a thoughtful way, like support a restaurant that is doing good things and treats their employees well, and you know if you're going to go to some place that. Um, you've never heard of before because it's, you know, really glitzy and you saw it online Mm because the food media won't stop writing about it. Like maybe do a little bit more research and try to support a neighborhood spot that's been around for like 15 years that you really wanted to try, but you're too busy trying the new spots and like maybe throw some bucks to someone who's been grinding it out in your own neighborhood Mm -hmm. for a long time. That you've walked by because you're always trying to find that next yeah. new thing.
1: You're trying to go to Dame, but there's like six other places on the on the spot. I didn't prep you for this. Two neighborhood spots we should be going to more that maybe aren't on Eater hot list. Um, on the top of Resi, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that you feel our listeners are always coming to New York and wanting to dine, but not necessarily at the the hottest places. Let's.
0: Oh, okay. you want to? You want me to suggest two?
1: Yeah, man. Ooh,
0: on the spot. I yeah. mean, I haven't been eating out that much but i but i will say that like a spot that i've always wanted to try which is so so close to me is sofra yeah i've never been there i hear phenomenal things so like that's next on my list for sure that i just absolutely want to try and then gosh in manhattan i mean you and i share a love for korean food and i just feel like sending anyone to i probably you know DMU first but yeah. like sending anyone to like 32nd 33rd yeah. street like is a cannot go wrong and i feel like that is a must visit yeah. new york experience so like i'm always going to send someone to get korean barbecue yeah. i just feel like that to me is getting like Getting Korean barbecue and doing karaoke or going to karaoke and then going to, like, yeah. BCD afterwards, to me, that is one of the main reasons to live in this city. It's like, true. Like, that is an experience. It's true. That is New York at its finest.
1: Thank you for sharing on on the, on the off the dome. Now, uh, how's your brother doing? What's he up to? What's Max up He's to? He's right? doing Max, great. You and Max were, like, attached at the hip um 14 15 16 and then I yeah. think he moved away
0: so. Totally. Yeah, we decided to be our own independent human yeah. beings for a while and and not just be the Sussman brothers which <laughs> served us well for a long time. Yeah. He's in Michigan. He's doing some consulting work. Cool. He's the back end guy on Samisa still, but um yeah, he's being a chef just in a different way in Michigan.
1: Yeah, I I can't wait to have him on the show and I, I'll invite him on soon enough. Um let's I want to just close about the memes. Like where does this go? I yeah. feel like as your platform grows and it will, because um, you're good at it and it's really cool. I mean, do you do you want to launch a YouTube channel, and do more front facing? I mean, do you do you want to do a book? We're here at Penguin Random House. We're always looking at yeah. folks like you. I mean, what where does it go from here?
0: I would love to keep doing it and hopefully people still think that I have something relevant to say. You know, like I want to be. Uh, place that people in the restaurant industry can kind of like join together and just uh vent and you know come to the memes and be like oh thank god someone's saying what I wanted to say but I either couldn't or didn't know how right so i love being that kind of vessel and that community chat room for people in the comment section and in my DMs. so that's super satisfying i hope that i can still create that type of content that people want to come and see and then yeah i'm going to do more video stuff this year um and then, who knows, like, maybe there is a, a book in the future. We'll
1: talk about that in a sec. I mean, would you ever go, like, the Dumois route and just do, like, straight gossip?
0: Yeah, that's not really, like, that appealing to no. me, you know? Like, the, like, rumor mill in the restaurant industry, I think I'll leave the journalists to settle the the bad behavior yeah. of, of folks, you know? Like, obviously, I weighed in on the Willow Inn Costco thing. I yeah. just think that was, like, the funniest thing Hilarious. ever. Hilarious. So, Funny. yeah, I mean, I am going to... Like that was kind of like a rumor, you know, that they go to Costco. So th- things like that I'll touch. But other things I'm just going to um, – I'll steer clear of the sort of like an anonymous – I yeah. s- heard a, I heard a bad thing and I hate this person with no substantiated evidence. Like I'm not trying to wade into those waters and be like a clearinghouse for, for people's um, uh, anonymous aggression. But yeah. like I do – definitely want to highlight more awesome small businesses. I've done this thing periodically called um, Sussman Spotlight, which I do in the stories, which is like a small business that is doing something interesting. I'll just shout out their page and I'll say, you should follow them. Yeah, And I let that. people submit um, a place that they think is awesome. And then I'll vet them to a certain extent yeah. and just, you know, scroll through their page and, and make sure that I'm vibing with what they're putting out and then I just put them on the stories and like maybe they get some extra followers from it. Who knows what could come of it? But I think that's a cool way to use my platform in addition to – talking shit and, yeah, c- no. and calling people out and then <laughs> beyond that it's like maybe there's a, a secondary way a video way that I can incorporate that and start highlighting some of those yeah. small businesses so you know I've got some things percolating for 2023 where I hope I can do more video stuff I'm trying to figure it out it's you know I am like an old guy in internet <laughs> years so I'm trying to figure out how to do all this this video Believe stuff me, I yeah. know.
1: I mean, it feels like New York Nico is, is also, like, a, a great follow uh, in the same vein as totally. yours. yeah. You know, shouting out local businesses. Yeah,
0: he does it in the most organic, amazing way. Yeah. I mean, he is, like, a New York dude through and yeah. through, and yeah. he's got all these, you know, you can tell that he was, like, 16, smoking cigarettes, walking around the Lower yeah. East Side, and just he knows everyone. Hanging on a
1: tunnel. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's just, you know, he's, like, tapped in in a way where— um he is the I mean he calls himself I think the voice of New York, right? And yeah. so like I would love to to a certain extent almost kind of copy what he's doing and be able to interact with small businesses, food businesses and like shout them out and but stuff you come like at it that, from yeah. a
1: chef point of view, which is different, which I think is cool and, yeah. and unique.
0: I mean, I definitely I'm playing a lot of inside baseball with the meme. So I I mean, there's there's probably a a point at which I could go a little bit more broad and increase the audience. But I'd love I'm just going to stay niche. Yeah, stay
1: stay true. If you
0: don't get it, I'm so sorry. But that probably means you never were a waiter.
1: Do you monetize this thing? Can you like actually make a make a nickel off of oh, this? Oh no,
0: no, no. There's no money being made off this. That would be so cool though, right? I, don't I mean know, I don't know how to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, I guess your your DMs are open yeah, for that. Yeah, exactly.
0: I am looking for sponsorship yeah. opportunities from companies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh no, I, I don't think that this is like um this isn't a, like a get rich opportunity. Nah. I don't think I'm ever gonna really be able to turn the account into the type of thing where I'm like Um, having sponsored memes and stuff like that. But um, I did consult for a company and make some memes for them. And that was a weird Mm. opportunity that came my way to help them kind of hone in on their voice. And an awesome experience for me as a chef, like – really going back now to like my old school advertising marketing days of like flexing some of these weird muscles and them all coming together and helping someone else kind of find what their comedic take could be on what their product was yeah
1: Uh, that's cool to hear I, i hope you can get more of those gigs eli we ask all guests in the taste podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget meaning you have unlimited funds all the money in the world what would that book be Yeah, I came prepared for this one. Okay,
0: so I'm calling it uh, Resetting the Table, (laughs) and there's a salt shaker, and it's – and there's just a pile (laughs) of salt on the table, right? And uh, what it is is um, it's uh, resetting the table. It's an average chef telling you how to be an above-average restaurant owner. (laughs) And what I'm going to do is I'm going to – I've got unlimited budget, right? Yeah, Okay, so I'm crisscrossing the nation on your dime, and I am eating at a lot of restaurants, and I'm talking to a lot of amazing – owners and chefs about the singular worst mistake that they've made when they opened up their business. And it's a personal anecdote. It's a story. It's an interview with them. And similar to what I've done on my podcast, you know, I'm mining other people's experiences so that I don't make that same mistake. So I'm basically uh, compiling that all together. So you get 100 Terrible situations <laughs> that hopefully let you navigate uh, y- your future as a restaurant owner, so that you don't make those same mistakes again. But guess what? You're gonna make yeah, the same mistakes. That's the again. whole like. That's yeah. the end
1: of the book. Is the like end of the gonna book keep is making it. You're screwed no matter what. I Love it, Eli Sussman. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. Great to see you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.